I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Good, mate. How are you going? I'm good. I've been steeped in English rugby league for the last month or so. I apologise to the listeners for the delay in getting the next Super League chapter out to you, but this has been a really tough one to put together. So our next chapter does focus on the English side of the Super League war. I've had to rope in some help on that. And so tonight is a little preamble to that chapter. and. Some of the help I've drawn on is Mike Meehall-Wood, who joins us tonight to talk about the 1996 Challenge Cup final. He's really burst onto the scene in terms of rugby league journalism in Australia. I've loved reading his articles over the last couple of months. So, Mike, very happy to have you with us. Welcome, yeah, Mike. It's great. I love the podcast. It's exactly the level of nerd that I like to go into. So uh, I'm sure I'm, I'll be in good company. <laughs> I hope you can put up with me talking at depth at a game that happened when I was seven. So, uh, Well, you really speak to us with your nerddom. That's why we've got you here tonight. I wanted to maybe just give our listeners a bit of an introduction to you. As I said, you've been doing some great stuff on Forbes, looking at rugby league and other sports, taking a, a broader view of the game, a lot of the business of rugby league. And it's a very like game-first approach to rugby league and i've loved getting that perspective so can you just um give us a bit of an introduction to where you come in on rugby league and where you come in on your journalism yeah so uh i've i mean as you can tell probably from the next hour or so of content i've watched rugby league since i was a little child you know the earliest i can remember is probably 94 95 season in the uk i definitely remember the 95 world cup and then obviously the start of super league so I've been watching this my whole life. I'm from Rochdale, which is kind of heartlands of rugby league, just north of Manchester. Um, but I've only really been writing about it for Forbes. I, I started working for Forbes in 2018, I think. Um, mostly doing soccer, because I was based in Germany at the time. But obviously, the, the more they let me write about whatever I wanted to write about, the more I started writing about rugby league. Um, so I'd been doing a bit before I did podcasts and stuff like that on the Super League. Um, I actually used to work at the RFL as a sort of, student kind of um you know making brews and working in the ticket office in the summer so i kind of worked at a lot of levels um my dad's a rugby league development officer in the uk so he'll he'll mention be mentioned frequently in it um a lot of people in the uk rugby league scene sort of would know who he was though he's not particularly famous it's that sort of strange um dichotomy but yeah so what i try and do is i mean the column i do is i've invented my own brand of the uh the nrl outsider which is sort of looking at the nrl from an outsider's perspective, because whilst I'm sort of as rugby league as they come, so I'm not Australian, I only moved here in January, so I'm not, uh, you know, I feel like I have the authority currently at the moment to be, to look at things from the outside and sort of, 
as a, as long as I've been a journalist, my career is like what's hand in hand with working in marketing. So most recently, I was doing, you know, I was working on the global advertising campaigns for Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein. Before that, I was working at Polaroid and Puma and loads of other different brands, sort of within that space. So I do know I like to think a little bit about marketing and and how, you know, it works on a much bigger level than rugby league, you know. So I try and bring a little bit of that to it, and obviously. The good thing about working for Forbes is that that's what they want. You know, they want you to look at things in a business angle because that's kind of their USP. So they have a very hands-off editorial policy, thankfully, where you just get to write about whatever you want. So I've been trying to just point out things that I've always either that I've thought for years or that I've noticed since I've been here. And you ask Australians, and they sort of go, "Well, it's always been like that." Well, my job as the outsider is to point out the things that everybody says have always been like that, and be like, "Why?" Would you like a job as the chief executive officer of the NRL? Or? <laughs> because we need you. Yeah, well, I actually had some meetings with people in Super League because I, I wrote similar columns about Super League. If you scroll down, you can find stuff I wrote about Super League that was very similar. Um, and I did speak to people about it, but it's very easy to sit and write it and very difficult to make it happen when you've got to, you know, make ends meet and you've got loads of stakeholders. It's great for me going, why don't you just play more international games? And they go, well... If you try and sell that one to 16 club owners who pay salaries, blah, blah, blah. So there is an element of, you know, realism that I can understand. That's just the way the world works. But yeah, if you don't ask the question, you don't get out, do you? So, so how familiar with were you with the nitty gritty of Australian Rugby League before you moved out here? Well, pretty. I mean, I worked predominantly for Australian clients. So I used to work for Steve Mascord's uh, Rugby League hub going back to 2017 or 2018. I covered the NRL pretty much week to week. I always use this anecdote. I think I've used it in a column before, but we used to get like a pawn video club where it was Winfield Cup highlights. Where you basically, you, there was a company in Wigan that would like duplicate the tapes of the Winfield Cup and send it out to news agents so you could subscribe to it. So all the way through the 90s, we had, you know, Winfield Cup games and State of Origin and stuff like that. And obviously we played the Kangaroo Tours. And so I was well aware of, you know, who the figures are. It's been interesting because the whole Super League War stuff that you've been covering, I know nothing about. Because I was at the time, it was like, wow, the colours, Hunter Mariners. Look at that jersey; that looks great. <laughs> so I wonder where Hunter is. You know, <laughs> to me, Hunter Mariners sounds like someone's name. Like, like, uh, oh, didn't he play second row for Salford, Hunter Mariner? And uh, so, yeah, it's been illuminating listening to this because it's sort of, you know, I know the figures, but like, I, like I know who Ken Arthurson is, but I don't know anything about him really. I've got no context, so. Yeah, it's been super interesting, especially with you guys going absolutely in-depth now. I feel like I'll sound like a more intelligent journalist when people ask me questions about it. Super League in the UK was not, in my experience, as bad an idea as it was in the NRL or in the ARL, sorry, because it just needed to happen. Something needed to happen to give the game a kick up the ass. I mean, you know, you can just go and look. As, as a business journalist, I go, well, go look at the TV figures. Go look at the attendance figures. Go look at the fact that Bradford didn't have any women's toilets. Like... It's <laughs> worse than like that, Mick. I was going to say, speaking of which, you've been on on a little uh, tour of all our rugby league grounds. You know, yeah, since, since yeah, the season yeah. started. Have you made your way to Leichhardt yet? No, I went on the day at Leichhardt. They played at Leichhardt. I went to North Sydney Oval, then to Bank West on the same day. Um, but having a Cogra, been at Cogra Oval, good bugs, solid bugs. Look like they've been there a long time. Um, uh, yeah, the west side's good. The east side, not so much. You can see the sea from the press box. I'll give it that. <laughs> and uh, so I don't like in the press box here. You've got like it's always behind glass, which really annoys me. So I go and because I'm not covering the match 
minute by minute, you know, I'm just sort of getting general feel for the place. I uh, usually go and stand on the hill after a bit. I like to go and have stick, stick you know, a couple of free pies and then <laughs> go somewhere else. But uh, yeah, it's been good. I'm thinking next year I might try and do Leafs clubs. Just try and go to every Leafs club. <laughs> That'd be awful. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Carolina. I mean, I don't know. It's still impressive to me that there's like a big thing that's called a Leafs club. <laughs> it's like, it's, I'm still like, wow, imagine if, you know, Batley Bulldogs are one of these. Yeah, basically, if you've ever seen a picture of the Taj Mahal, that's uh, <laughs> that, that's the vibe we have gone for and succeeded in recreating. It's more a gambling den. It'd be like calling a Scottish smack house a, a social club. <laughs> Well, uh, if you know, the game that we're talking about is the uh, in the grand tradition is the uh, Silk Cut Challenge Cup, which was a fag brand. And uh, yeah. spoiler alert: Robbie Ball gets given ten grand by a fag company. Uh, at the end of the game. <laughs> I was going to bring that up myself, but I mean, like his reaction to that was so funny. It was uh, just so low key. They say to him, he goes, uh, "You know, I'm devastated. I can't really talk about it." And then the the, uh, the interviewer, who in the grand tradition of rugby league names, is called Dicky Duckinfield. <laughs> um, I'm convinced is actually you know like in Mad Men um, when it turns out spoiler alert again in Mad Men Dan Draper's not actually called Dan Draper I think that's Dave Woods he does the BBC now but he's like he lived under the name Dick Duckinfield until <laughs> about 2000 he's got exactly the same voice when he got him on the touchline alright well let's try to steer this back on track somehow and go to the game itself so the 1996 Challenge Cup final this game means a lot to you. You've given us this beautiful dossier. It's usually my job doing the dossiers. To, so to be presented with such a, a thorough document that I'm looking at now, it's it's a, a real treat for me. One of the great games as well. I think anyone who hasn't watched it, stop listening to this now. Go and find it on YouTube, watch the game, then come back to us. But can you just, just set it up? Why this game? Why did you want to talk about this game? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the podcast series has been about Super League and how it started. So this game was six weeks after the start of Super League in the UK. So it was April the 23rd, 1996. We'd had the first game, which was Paris against Sheffield, was, I think, the end of February in Paris. So this is all very much the new era has begun. So you're watching Bradford Bulls, who were called Bradford Northern or Bradford Northern, if you're actually from Bradford. Um, who would change their name. They were the absolute poster boys of Super League. So they had a guy called Peter Deacon, who was the sort of CEO, chief executive. Um, but he was he was the first person to do sort of the NFLization, as I've called it, of the game. So you went to Bradford, they had the big mascot. Every week was like a theme night. I used to go to Bradford pretty much every week because I'm actually a whole FC supporter, but it's too far away from my house to drive to all every week. So we used to go to Bradford, um, also, Brian Smith is a coach, as we'll come on to. He's a mate of my dad's for a very convoluted reason. So we quite like them. But then it's St. Ellen's, who um, my parents used to live in St. Ellen's. They, my dad was a teacher there. Um, they actually got married. Well, I got married in a church, but their wedding reception was in the essentially the Saints Leafs Club, <laughs> like the, the social club in the stadium. <laughs> uh, my mom got quite emotional when they, when they uh, closed the stadium down a couple of years ago. And also because Wigan had won it for eight years in a row. You know, this was the end of the Wigan dynasty. And I actually remember watching live on Saturday afternoon, watching Salford, who were the champions of the second division, beat Wigan. And you can watch that game on YouTube as well. It's, it's uh, pretty entertaining. If you want to see what rugby league looked like before Super League, um, 
that's about two weeks before Super League started, I think, and it's pretty grim looking. You know, there's the context is you've got the era of Wigan is over. This is the new era. It's bright. It's a sunny afternoon. They're wearing sort of, you know, it's weird because Bradford's kit looks like a Super League kit. They've got squad numbers on the back, which actually went and watched the semi-final today and they didn't have squad numbers and every player just had balls written in the same font above the number, which is very unusual. <laughs> so, you know, this is the new era. This is kind of what we're trying to get at. And I think it's important to think of it in the context as well because so this was three weeks after the greatest game in the history of the Premier League football, which is uh, Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3. Uh, well worth looking up as well. And, you know, it's just before England was going to host the European Football Championship. Um, the Tories, the Tory government that had ruined everything, they were about to be, they were very much on their last legs. So they've got this kind of, you know, this cultural moment that a lot of people in Britain would say was about to happen with uh, your know, Britpop the year before and, and sort of the, what was later referred to very cringeworthy as Cool Britannia. Um, so it kind of fits into this sort of place in my head, you know, and I'm sure... I'm told by the notes that uh, Andy wants to talk about Oasis. So. <laughs> um, love Oasis, mate. But like you said, you're from Rochdale. Did, it, did you support the Hornets or just? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, there'll be some high quality Rochdale Hornets content planned in for later when we have to talk about Bobby Gilding, who is a club legend of Rochdale. And I say that in sort of both ironic and non-ironic terms. Uh, yeah, I am a Rochdale Hornets fan. That was, I watched them pretty much every week when I was growing up. I mean, the first game I ever went to, I think, was Rochdale Hornets against Carlisle in 1994. And I was a ball boy all through my childhood. So I went over almost every week that they played at awesome. Um I've seen some interesting sites there at Rochdale Hornets, I'll tell you what. It's a, an unusual rugby league club. Um, but I should plug my own work because I've just written an article about their connection to VG, which is one of the most unusual things in, uh, in rugby league. And people should go and read it because it's a very strange style. Tale. I can't recommend your work enough. I use Forbes as a resource in my work all the time in general, but reading your stuff, I know you feel like a modern journalist and I love it. So get out and check out Mike's work, everybody. The, probably the biggest divide in Auntie and I's relationship is the fact that I'm a blur guy. So <laughs> can, can you can you settle the debate for us? Break the tie? Yeah. The uh, the best band of the Ripple era are Pulp. Oh, so. I lo- love Pulp too. Yeah, Oasis are better than Blur, but Pulp are better than all of them. That's the uh, short answer. I like Jarvis too, but I mean, uh, once you get past common people, it's, it's a bit of a quality drop-off. Oh, <laughs> absolutely nonsense. Absolutely. He did an eight-minute-long song called Sheffield Sex City about uh, <laughs> wanting to go and shag someone on the other side of town, but you couldn't go because the bus fares go up at seven. Salt <laughs> <laughs> of the earth. That's, you know, <laughs> write about what you know, write about the people that you see. Yeah, his lyrics are phenomenal. Like His interviews in the documentary Live Forever are some of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. He's sitting in this, like, uh, boarding house on a single bed, and he's just so sardonic, Jarvis Conner. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, I think his dad actually lives in Australia now. But, yeah, he's, um, I would say they are they're probably in my top five favourite bands of all time, I pulled. And, uh I actually think they get better. Most people think they peaked around 96, which is common people. I think they actually got better as they, before they stopped in 2000. I think it's the perfect song. I listen to it probably five, ten times a week. No joke. What, yeah. common people? Yeah, I love it. I think, I think it's one of the most perfect songs ever written. Yeah, there's a good Nick Cave cover of it as well. I would uh, recommend really? looking up if you want an Australian twist on it. Well, while we're on this topic, Mick, just quickly, I was just thinking about this Challenge Cup, what a major event it is and how everyone goes down on the train and goes to Wembley or back in the old days. 
and it was sort of like um, it's an northern game, but we're going down to London to to have the big event and, and show off in front of them and get their approval. That's how it felt to me. Even though it was great, Wembley was great. It pissed me off that like they didn't care about rugby league all year until the big one. And then uh, then I just thought about how Manchester took over the music scene and with Manchester and I was the centre of Britain there for a while. And I'd like to see the rugby league stay in the heartland, you know, and, and not bow to the southern fairies. <laughs> have you have you ever been to a Challenge Cup final, either of you? It's the yeah. Well, it is that kind of experience still does exist where it's very funny, like, because mostly, obviously, everybody gets either goes down in the morning. Often when it was in August, they're moving it back to July now. But when it was in August, they often was on a bank holiday. So you couldn't, um, the trains wouldn't be on. It was really annoying. Like, there was one year Warrington played. And you just couldn't get back to Warrington on the train. So the whole thing was destroyed. It used to be, when I was a kid, you used to go down and, like, the, all the clubs would run a bus, you know? Although, as we'll come on to, this was not, we have sort of a unique Challenge Cup final experience where I think my parents have been to almost every one since, um, definitely since 85, which I think might have been the first one my mum went to. My dad's been to every one for about 50 years. But um, every year you go, you know, there's guys in fancy dress. And it's also because, like, there's that animosity in it's rugby league people. Like, just treat London as, like, absolute shite the whole time. Like, just abuse people, drunk and obnoxious in the best possible not an aggressive way, even just a <laughs> absolute don't give a shit about you or your fucking city kind of way. Um, which just I another way, very, yeah. Yeah, very much appreciated. Um, <laughs> it's funny because you, you go to like some pub and it literally will just be like the closest pub to Houston Station or just have, you know, 50 blokes from Jewsbury being obnoxious in it and all these people sipping their fucking rosés going, what's going on here? <laughs> what language are these people speaking? <laughs> but uh, I posited in my addendum to your notes that I don't know if you know Gavin Willisey at all, but I read an article that he did talking about the diminished profile of rugby league in the South. He grew up in um, Hertfordshire, so not like in the North, but he was saying in the eighties, it was just like, it was kind of a niche sport still, but it was on the landscape and you had, you know, in the early nineties, Martin Afire, Ellery Hanley, being, you know, making the, the top 50 most, you know, well-paid English athletes and that sort of thing. And it just seems that by this point, by the mid-90s, that had all started to fall away. Like, there were no rugby league players cutting through at a national level. And it seems that maybe the Challenge Cup was a day for Northerners in the South. Like, do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I mean, there's one big reason why that happened. For a podcast that talks about games breaking away from other games like the Premier League just blew everything out of the water in 1992 so I mean you say if, if Hanley and Afire were in the top 50 best played sports people it's because footballers weren't being paid well so you look at like what the top earning player in the Super League earns now and it's like what a Man City Reserve earns in a week and they earn it in a year you can't imagine how much the landscape was changed by the Premier League and what you had in the early 90s. So the actual the formation of the Premier League wasn't that much of a big deal in terms, obviously it was a big deal, but it wasn't like a generational shift. But then when you get the Man United teams that come through, certainly this is how it felt in Manchester. Um, when you get the Man United team comes through, and then, I mean, so for example, this season we're talking about, you have Liverpool, Newcastle, Man United going for the title. This is the Man United team that first has Beckham in it. And you're going to use my musical analogy, I always like the what was in the charts at the time. But uh, Spice Girls Wannabe came out about two months after this, I think. 
So this is, you know, this whole cultural wave, which brings football with it. And Euro 96, which is like, you can't imagine how big an effect that had on football in terms of rehabilitating it from being the hooligan thing into being like a cool thing. You know, Oasis going on TV, wearing their Man City shirts, stuff like that. This two or three weeks after this was the Spice Boys final with um, where Man United beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final on my birthday, ruined my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so you can't imagine how big football was. And at the same time, English cricket was in a bit of a dull run. We were shit in the 90s. Rub Union obviously went professional as well, but still wasn't, you know, it was still very much legal union. And so Union got that big boost from going professional. And football just ruled everything. Like it still does now. It still utterly dominates pretty much everything except for a couple of months in the summer when we get cricket. But mostly even then it's talking about the transfer window. Like it's, it's difficult to imagine the cultural hegemony that football has. And I say that as someone who's, you know, I love football. I'm a football journalist. Like, as well as a rugby league journalist but it is difficult like to use the Forbes terminology like rugby league is basically a heritage bespoke product that people will always love because it's different it's kind of like an indie band compared to Ed Sheeran whereas football is just so all-consuming you know if you ask people to name 50 athletes in England they'd probably get like Anthony Joshua Tyson Fury and probably 10 footballers so that's just how it is like that's why we compete in a different talent pool different media environment blah 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 all of these things because football's just so big when you look at like Super League going on to Sky and behind, behind a paywall like the reason that Sky exists probably the reason they even tried to use Corp tried to buy out the Super League in Australia is because they made so much money buying out the Premier League like in England that's where the actual that's the cash cut you know and it still is to this day. Well, it's such a good point mate because like, Murdoch had Sky right and then made all that money from Premier League and then the Super League in Australia was just a, was like a little side bet it was just a it was like yeah, one of those com- bets at the casino where you put one dollar up the top and try and win the jackpot. <laughs> yeah, comparatively, it's kind of funny when you think of like the Super League war in the or lack thereof in the UK is like a sideshow to the one in the NRL. But then the one in the NRL is kind of a sideshow compared to what happened in yeah in European football with not just Sky but like Canal Plus and other you know major um, what's the one in Italy called the Berlusconi owns the one the Berlusconi owns Rye I think it's called on Medianet, something like that. But all the different countries had their own version of it where the pay TV provider basically came in, whacked up everybody's wages, and then it was kind of killed off every other sport. And if you, you know, you could have this conversation in French about talking about the Tour de France in the 90s, and they'll all probably say, yeah, football killed it. Or I'm sure there's niche cricket podcasts talking about, you know, the 2005 Ashes, and they'll go, well, yeah, but we had that last time it was on free tour, and football's killed it since nobody watches it. So that's what everybody says. He's not a football fan. And guess what football fans say? Wasn't it better in the 90s? Wasn't it better in the 80s? That's what people are like. <laughs> I listened to a whole host of nostalgic football podcasts about football in the 90s, and I can't tell you how happy I am to be on the rugby league version of that. <laughs> well, we should probably get to the game itself. We've given a lot of context to the era. How about just some opening thoughts? Andy, do you want to start? I absolutely loved staying up watching these when I was a kid and uh, I was following the English game from the 94 tour as I always talk about on, on the Super League pod and I loved this game. I remember watching it and I remember thinking Bobby Dazzler, how good's Bobby Goulding and uh, who's this Robbie Paul? Is that Henry Paul's brother and you know all sort of stuff and you know uh, Prescott with the super tries and it was just uh, so exciting, man. I loved it. It was the first time watching it for me. I didn't watch it at the time and so it, it's been hard for me to to separate like the the pure experience from 
all the wider context. And and so for me, the, as good a game as it was, for me, the most striking thing was just the fact that it was this unseasonably warm day. You had this partying crowd in, in you know, shorts and singlets, and it was just so bright and sunny. And just as an introduction to summer rugby, even though this was technically still you know the the winter competition like it, it's basically the, the 1995 season's challenge cup final so it was in this weird bridge period and just as a as an introduction to the the new era of rugby league you couldn't have imagined a more perfect day of weather and a more perfect exhibition on the field well it was 75 degrees fahrenheit in the sun the commentator said <laughs> Which is like, I think that's what it was today and what's in the autumn in today. <laughs> <laughs> by the standards of Bradford, that's positively tropical. So, so you, you should understand as well, like where, what Bradford were doing at the time. So before Super League, there'd been Cougar Mania in Keithley. And so Bradford kind of took that idea and ran with it. So Keithley famously didn't get included in the first Super League in Bradford, who'd been terrible. Well, not terrible. Inconsequential. Previously, they hadn't been to the cup final since, well, I think since the eight, you know, seventies. They lost to Featherstone, I think seventy-three, something like that. Um, Saints even hadn't won it for twenty years as well. A lot of times, the Saints had been they've been in the final, they just got beat by Wigan because everybody got beat by Wigan. Um, and so for when Bradford won the semi against Leeds, Robbie Paul was unbelievable in that game, absolutely unbelievable. Um, so, but he was still this like kind of unknown figure like this whole thing you know they talked through the whole game about the ten thousand pounds for the hat trick in the cup final like i can remember that being a thing like that was a thing and so it was like i would sit and watch this and it was like who is this robbie paul though and you know and everyone is that age i was i would have just been about to turn seven like everything is so new and this is the first cup final i can remember like so it's kind of like this is the first time when i'm like rugby league's amazing this is my favorite thing and yeah, I'm 31 now, so it's gone. It's gone pretty well since. But when you you look at that now, it still looks as sort of technical and brilliant. Like even me watching it, you know, watch Rugby the British Rugby my whole life, I still get that feeling that you get watching it the first time. You're like this is it looks new and it looks bright. We should set up what actually happened in the game. So pretty crazy. So one forty to thirty two by uh, St Helens in the end. Uh, 14-12 to Bradford at halftime. So it was a real slow burn because not having seen the game before, knowing the final score, I'm watching like the first like 20 minutes and, you know, you had that like Prescott got two tries in the first 20 minutes, didn't he? Did he score yeah. Yeah. the yeah. first two St. Helens tries? Yeah, he scored the chip yeah. over and kick on. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Try. Amazing try. You know, but here's the thing. That try was as good as Mullins' one. He, he yeah. kicked it on the full the second time. And the commentators yep. barely even touched on it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he plays a bit of soccer, this boy, you know, whatever. I, I noticed uh, you and I both had it in our notes, Andy, but opening kickoff. <laughs> <laughs> opening kick- kickoffs and Helen's kicking to Bradford. Bradford immediately, like, kick it back to them. I've and never then, seen that. I've never seen that before. I was like, what is this? What are they doing? And then concede a penalty. Yeah, like, it's probably yeah. the worst start in the history of rugby league. But I, I, I get what he was thinking. I'm gonna, we're going to assert our defence. But in the modern terms, they were just tackling from the 40-metre line. Yeah. 
Crazy. <laughs> we watched the full coverage where you get the, you know, not the Brett Kenny with his hands in his pockets, but you get them seeing the, um, you know, the dignitaries, which I thought the brilliant rugby league name Ian Sproke before it turns out he's actually a Tory MP. He's <laughs> <laughs> the minister of sport at the time, probably not a rugby league man. Um, but just before it, you, one of the things I noticed, I completely forgot, there's this guy, Chris Kaisley, who I guess, I don't know if you know who he is. I think he was Sam Burgess's agent. I think he lives oh. here now. But he owned Bradford Bulls at the time. And he looks like, I've written down, Bad Vegas Gambler slash Country Music Awards to describe <laughs> his outfit. <laughs> but he was apparently, he was like the consul general to the Netherlands or something. But he was the chair of Super League for a bit. He's a very sort of colourful character. My, I've made two pages of notes on this and about half of them is just quotes from Ray French. So. <laughs> <laughs> I me and Andy listening to Ray French, like we just think he's great, but yeah, but I un- understand like he's quite divisive in England. It seems that you know not everyone loves him. No, in my house he is. He's, he's very much a favoured character. Like as someone who can only do two impressions, and one of them's Jimmy Savile. Like about to basically stick to Ray French <laughs> <laughs> ever ever since <laughs> the unpleasantness. But he's, yeah, you know he's very much like a. I think of him as a loved character. I don't. He's not like Eddie Waring was very sort of. Uh, people thought he was a caricature yeah. of that. Well, it's very French, I guess, because he'd done it as well. Like he played league and union for England. Like he was a proper character. And like, I've met him a few times. He's a lovely man. Like one of the things you notice in the press box here is that nobody says hello to you. Whereas uh, whenever I was like, I'd cover a grand final or something, Ray French would just start talking to you like he'd been there all the time. So he's a very nice man as well. But, oh, I've noted here as well, which I think would have been lost on you, but the Robbie Paul with his collar up the whole time. Yeah. Does that mean anything to you? It means he's a douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that was a thing that Eric Cantona did. Ah. Yeah, right. so there, was, there was an advert at the time with Eric Cantona with his collar up, and he like take, or he used to take penalties. He would put his collar up and then whack it in the net. So I think that's sort of Robbie Paul being... Like I, I am the cool kid here, which he pretty much was. It's a ballsy move, but then to to go on and do what he did. So the hat trick he tries. The third try he scored. Fourteen twelve at halftime. Bradford go on to get up twenty six to twelve before St Helens come back and you know get eight points in front before Robbie Paul scores his third try, which was just like brilliant. The most beautiful individual try maybe since uh, Kenny in 85 and and I, I want to talk about the comparisons to that challenge cup final but for Robbie Paul to call his shot like that put the collar up and yeah. put on an exhibition like that the funny thing is like if you hadn't scored a try I think in the cup before that day but I, having watched the semi-final like he's just as good in the semi-final in which he absolutely runs the show he gets criminally robbed of a try he scores a similar try to that one and then the referee he says he knocks it on which he just just doesn't knock it on. Now, they show it about 15 times and he hasn't knocked it on. Video ref would have let it go. But um, he had this thing where he just looked faster than everybody else. And it's very, for me, it's interesting to watch because if you look at, my, my perception of this game, right, was that Robbie Paul was great, but that Bobby Goulden was actually, should have been man of the match. But when uh, you watch that second half, but even when Bradford are, you know, Saints are clawing it back, Robbie Paul, still, every time he gets the ball, he looks like he's going to run through everybody. I don't know if this is just something that was always in, in, you know, the kids that I played with. But when you had the, you did the spin was always sort of the Robbie Paul. That was the move that he scored the second try with, which is, I don't know if that, I'm sure it existed prior, but that was the thing about, oh, that was what Robbie Paul did. Like that was his move. And then the other sort of just flip side of that, which I think we'll probably mention is 
Nathan Graham's inability to catch the ball off a kick, mm. like yeah, yeah. somebody kicking the ball up in the air was, you know, something he'd never come across before. And his <laughs> sort of position, position was a tragic figure in this, where basically all three tries that result in uh, Saints clawing back the deficit are all basically the mm. same try. How did his career pan out after that? Did he uh, not not brilliantly? Although there's a, there is an interesting coda to it at the end, which is that at the start of the pandemic, he was I think he was the coach of Scotland. He may still be the coach of Scotland. I think John Duffy is the league coach of Scotland now. He was the coach of Scotland. He played for Dewsbury. His top level career didn't really go anywhere for obvious reasons. But he uh, he was working as like frontline health worker during the pandemic while being Nathan Graham. There were stories about it. You can dig out stories about it from last year and I was like, wow, that's what Nathan Graham does now. Um, on the less happy side, I did also find out what Villa Matautia still what does now, which is uh, one of the two, which incidentally, there is only, I think, two Australians playing this game. Saints don't have a single Australian, which is an amazing thing to think of British Republic with no Australians. They've got yeah. Villa Matautia and Apollo Perolini. Um, Matautia still lives in St. Helens and last I heard of him was... <laughs> Appearing in court for battering a fifteen-year-old. Oh <laughs> God! <laughs> keeping the keeping the rugby tradition alive. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about the actual style of the game because Mick saw he's talking about bright football, and I, and I, I subscribe to his love for that. And it was definitely bright football, but it's so unstructured and so frenetic. I loved it, and it's such a shame that the toothpaste out of the tube now because I'd love to go back to that as opposed to the structured play. You know, there's a bit in the second half where Ray French says, you know, the game's, what, 40-32? And then it comes up on the screen that has been like 36 errors or something. Mm. And Ray, Ray French says, well, it's a lot of errors, but let's think it's probably made the game better or something along those lines. Because you know, like, every time they got the ball, it was immediately, how can we try and score from this play? Yeah, like, I, there's, I, not, I, there's not many benign hit-ups in this game. <laughs> I, I had it in my notes. I noticed they, they did a flash of the errors after 10 minutes. After 10 minutes... Bradford had made four errors. Like, <laughs> if, if a team did that in an NRL game now, like, you know, they'd be crucified. This is a good place to introduce and compare the 85 Challenge Cup, I think, because it was very similar in the way that it was so freewheeling and, and people were just making these ridiculous decisions that, you know, half the time wouldn't come off. They'd be, you know, throwing a ball to no one into touch running blind and getting bundled out and, and just, you know, throwing intercepts. And it was just accepted as, well, you know, you do that. And then sometimes it doesn't come off, but sometimes you get a brilliant attacking move out of it. And I think it's something that has really been lost, you know, on, on, in both hemispheres of rugby league. Yeah. Do you know, I, I went and watched successive champion, uh, champion league, challenge cup finals to try and work out when it starts to look like, rugby league today just watching random games picked out not just challenge cup finals actually but i watched uh in a part, in a part of a, a segment i'm going to call was robbie paul actually that good um, <laughs> where i watched the 2002 world cup challenge against newcastle and so newcastle's got like joey john danny Baderas, like it's a pretty fucking good team they just won the premiership and robbie paul ran the show for first four tries of the game two of them he scores and two of them he lays on but that looks like that's 2002 it was like it was Vinicolo's first game. I remember going to it and being so excited to see Leslie Vinicolo. More excited than seeing fucking Andrew John. Like, <laughs> it's strange. Um, especially when he when he later played for Warrington and we like drove specifically to watch Andrew John's play. Um, 
I guess the myth hadn't sort of risen by turning <laughs> to a, to my my thirteen year old brain. Like Vinicola was the uh, the thing. The volcano. But, yeah, yeah, and he scores this. He scores this like pretty generic running try, and everyone's like, "Oh my lord, what is this man? Look at the size <laughs> of him! He's a, look at the size of him!" But he's a winger. Um, but yeah, by that stage, it starts to look structured. Still a bit like all over the place, and I guess that's probably Australia is you know come into it a little bit more because I, I know I feel like down at lower level English rugby league that continued for ages like I mean we can talk about Bobby Gilding's time coaching Rochdale which was very much in that uh, that was the order of the day shall we say but he um, yeah there's some interesting instance sort of asides I thought I mean we should probably talk about the coaches as well right because this is a legend of this podcast and uh, <laughs> <laughs> a legend of rugby league <laughs> Well, rumour has it that um, Sean McRae moved to England on the behest of his <laughs> wife to escape a certain gentleman caller from Newcastle. I wonder if he had a St. Helens equivalent, like calling up his wife to ask <laughs> if Kieran Cunningham was going to be playing. <laughs> it was Mike. <laughs> no, I can tell you some of my embarrassing rugby league stories actually from the 1995 uh, Challenge Cup semi-final when I was literally five years old, and it's sort of your own rugby league episode of uh, Kids Say the Funniest Thing, Oldham lost, and we very much wanted Oldham to win. And after the game, like in the sort of bar, it was like he was at Huddersfield Stadium, in the bar, my dad was like, this is blah, blah, blah. He refereed the game. And, I, and my five-year-old went, oh, my dad thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time he said that. No, that's probably not, that's probably not the hundredth time he said it today, and probably the previous <laughs> nine, ninety-nine of them was my dad screaming at him. Very cute. But I tell you what's funny, like um, it goes to show the importance of what town you're from in the north of England. They were saying, and there's Stuart Cummings. He's from Widnes. Like, have you ever heard <laughs> an Australian referee like where he's from? Yeah, yeah. I can't believe they flashed it up on the screen where the ref yeah. was from. Yeah, yeah. There's actually speaking of indie bands, there's a band called Half Man Half Biscuit who. I can't remember what town it is, but they, what, they're a very sort of lyrically dense, shall we say, band. Obscurantist might be the word, but they have a bit about, a line about some town being the sort of town that referees come from. <laughs> <laughs> like, Paul, I always think of one of the referees, Graham Pollis, from the town of Tring. And no, I have no idea where Tring is. I don't know anything about that's it, but that's where Graham Pollis is from. That's really funny. <laughs> The last time we saw Sean McRae, he was on the field in the 94 grand final wearing a pair of King G's and a, <laughs> a, a, a pastel yellow polo. So look, looking at him in, in his suit, the Challenge Cup finally looked a million bucks. He's he's cleaned up his act. He's an interesting character. My, so my dad actually knows both of the coaches in this, right? For, for some reason, he knows Sean McRae. I, I asked him about this because I knew that he knew him, right? And I said, why do you know Sean McRae? My mum, ironically, I'm sure Sean McRae doesn't listen to this, so he longer would have turned up. But my mum used to call him Bullfrog, not like Peter Moore, but like, because she thought he looked like a frog. <laughs> <laughs> a pig frog, in fairness. But uh, he, um, so when he was on the Kangaroo Tour, I, think, I don't know if it was the 90 or the 94 one, like, because they were, I think they were based in Manchester. My dad was like a Manchester development officer. His job was like helping them out. So obviously his go-to was Sean McRae. So he just got on with him, blah, blah, blah. And then Brian Smith, he knew really well, like really well. Um, so Brian Smith, I, my first childhood Teddy was called Brian Smith. <laughs> <laughs> my brother's was called Kevin Tamati. 
Um, <laughs> my, so Brian Smith was um, was a school teacher in St George, James Cook High School in St George, and they played a tour against the school that my dad worked at in St Helens, where Matt Callan, who plays in this game, he went to that school. He's now the coach of Rochdale, aren't it? Um, so my dad just knew him as like the, his equivalent who did the same job, but on the other side of the world. Mm. I mean, I'd much rather do it in St. George and St. Helens, <laughs> put it that way. But, um, so they, you know, my, my dad written, like knew Brian Smith. He was sort of, Brian Smith was the, he's the mentor to lots of coaches in the UK. Like Steve Deacon, his, his brother, Peter Deacon was the, you know, the head honcho at Bradford. Steve Deacon coached a million clubs in, um, in the UK, mostly the second division. I don't think he ever coached in, in um, Super League. He was the first coach for Catalan before they got into Super League. So I interviewed him last year, actually, for a podcast series, and he just went on for 20 minutes about how good Brian Smith was and how his coaching methods were revolutionary and no one had ever seen anything like it, blah, blah, blah. So this is what, you know, Brian Smith had gone from, he was all FC coach, 89, 90, then obviously gone back to was it St. George in the, night, in the early 90s, and then came back to Bradford again, again, lost the final. But he, so he was very much like seen as being the future you know he was doing very different stuff to everybody else I, I would imagine Sean, Sean McRae's background being a sort of a physical trainer would also have put him into that bracket as well because I can imagine there wasn't much physical training going on prior in St. Helens but there was a you know they this kind of style of fitness like and if you look at what happened so Sean McRae wins the title that year wins the Challenge Cup then you get the next year Bradford under Matthew Elliott they go I think they won 20 games unbeaten. They'd won the they'd won the league before they lost the game. So they really did. I mean, you look at these two teams. You've had eight years of Wigan winning everything, and then I think seven of the next eight premierships are won by Bradford or Saints. So this is very much the two teams who become the Super League era before, kind of in the mid 2000s, Leeds and Wigan come back in a little bit. All Saints they pretty much stayed up the whole time, but they're you know these two are going to be going to be the next big thing. And when you look, when you watch it in this, the hindsight that we have now, that's what it looks like. And you mentioned that Bradford had come from, you know, not being a very successful club to, you know, here they are at Wembley. So do you put a lot of that on Brian Smith? I mean, they, there's the whole holistic thing about it. Like I used to go to Bradford, every, you know, not every game, but a lot of games in that, that time period. And the experience was totally different. Like you can't overstate how much they changed what they were what rugby league was meant to be like this was it's funny actually because their stadium is literally a big hole in the ground like it's a massive natural crater so it wasn't as if they had much to work with Hell but they, it is literally they didn't it was three sides of un, of like uncovered plus it had, still had a, a speedway track around it and the ball would often hold up there was a camber for the speedway track oh yeah <laughs> So it was. It wasn't good facilities. Like you couldn't see it from a distance because it went down. Like you had the floodlights, and you know, you, when you walked there, you had to park on the street and walk across a load of footy fields to get there. So if it had been raining, like forget about it. It didn't have women's toilets. Like it was. It was a shit hole. But they made it into an experience because they had the pre-match. They had like I remember they would do like Blues Brothers nights, and if you came dressed as the Blues Brothers, you got in for free, and they'd have like a tribute band on and stuff like that. It sounds really simple now, but at the time it was like wow. And I've actually included in our notes a link to the uh, Saints' attempt at this, which is called the Saints Experience. 
which basically meant they made a happy hardcore remix of Owen the Saints and put some fairy lights around the, <laughs> around like the pillars at No Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going and it being a big thing, you know, and it was like a bag of shite. Um, although in a very rugby league digest way, the article I linked from the Sentinel Home Star, probably 80% of it is about the standards of the toilet. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, yeah, yeah, it was all about the, the Saints experience and it was literally just about improvements to the toilet facilities. <laughs> I went there. They didn't improve. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they noticeably oh. improved. <laughs> How funny is rugby league? <laughs> but yeah, it, it must have been right. And if you look at so you look at the players on display here, right? You've got I think of like you know the Saints teams who went on to win World Cup challenges. You've got Joints playing, New Loves playing, um, Kerry Cunningham's nineteen. You get then you, on the other side you get Robbie Paul. You've got James Lowe's is actually cup tied. So James Lowe's is kind of my favourite player as a kid. He was an unbelievable hooker. He um he just moved from Leeds, so he couldn't play because he'd already played in the early rounds of the cup. Um, and you, I think you can tell they don't really have a hooker. That's probably why they're so just fucking throw it anywhere. Nobody's telling them where to go. Um, but so the kernel of that team is there, and you look at um I think at the time, Skullthorpe might have been at Warrington, so he was not long before coming over. Goulding was eventually moved on when Sean Long came in. And obviously, Sean Long went on to be the sort of stalwart, stalwart leader of that team for years and years and years. And Goulding went off the rails, mm. <laughs> became a maniac. <laughs> but he, he um, we should talk a bit about Bobby Goulding, right? Because he is he is an absolute hero. And I can assure you, every kid that played rugby league, like every team he played for St. Helens, Wigan, Witness, Bobby, had their number seven had that haircut. Like yeah, yeah. the short, the short, 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 the reverse mullet almost, where he's got like the little <laughs> sticky up bit at the front. But he, he, that was him. Like he was either completely brilliant or completely mental. Like you look at his, I know the season after he got suspended for about 10 weeks in the season, they still picked him for Great Britain because they were like, if someone's going to do it, it'll probably be him. Like he, um, when he was the coach of Rochdale in the early 2000s, he played some of the best individual performances. Like Rochdale were not a particularly good team, and we turned over. Remember, we won. We beat Castleford seventeen sixteen, in which he was, I'd say, comfortably the best individual performance I've ever seen. And he still got sent in for fighting. Like, <laughs> and he was like trying to fight the crowd. Like he was half his. I remember I, when I worked at the rugby league. One of my jobs, I used to go to the. I would get sent to go and get the disciplinary files for the match review panel. Back before there was a, anything was computerized, we had to go and get files out of the attic. And I found Bobby Gilding's disciplinary file, and it was huge. <laughs> we were convinced he was on something. I'm sure I don't want to libel Bobby Gilding because he's a very angry man. But I'm told he's a very nice man, but he's always come across as quite a, a man with a, a fuse. Um, but yeah, he was on his day absolutely unplayable. And like this was one of his days when he was just chest out, littlest guy in the field, but just did not give a shit. I always think I think of him, maybe that's because of the recent death of Toddy Radonicus, but like that's the the mould of character that he was. He was like a tiny number seven, but also a hard man. To me, he had the time of the Cliffy Lions or uh, Jason Smith with the ball. His ball playing was just a thing of beauty. Yeah, definitely. And he, he is, without him, that team, there's nothing like Carl Hammond, who's also, who was a great player. He, the, tr- the try that put Saints in front Danny Arnold scores. <laughs> Nathan Graham with a dummy that Nathan Graham's paying back in after that one. He gets sent so far. So he was a real mercurial player as well. But Bobby Goulding was the one telling everybody where to stand, where to go, and just 
leading everything sort of by example and by sort of force of personality at the same time. And this kind of leads you back to 85 as well. We mentioned the, you know, Sterling and Kenny comparison. You had Goulding and Robbie Paul here. And obviously with a, with a different result than what we saw in 85. Do you agree with the Lance Todd decision? So Robbie Paul got it in the end with his three tries, but Bobby Goulding won the game for St. Helens. Before I watched the game through, I remember at the time, obviously, first Patrick at Wembley, it seems completely obvious that he wins it. And then in the intervening 25 years, I thought actually probably Bobby Goulding was better. But then having watched it again today, like that is the quintessential like Lance Todd trophy win in a losing performance. Like he is by far Brad, Bradford's best player. Like, and if it hadn't have been for him, they would have got absolutely you know, battered. And he's so much better than anybody else on Bradford's team. Even that's not to say that Bradford played really badly, but like he was so much better. Um, and I think there's a crucial thing, which I've really only realized today. Like I, so if you go, the way they do the Lance Todd trophy is it's a vote in the press box. And I know I have voted in the Lancer Trophy previously. And at the time they would have took the vote, he just scored that try and Bradford were mm. 32 30 for saying. Yeah. And then obviously they go, so they might have even been winning. Sometimes they would do it 20 minutes from the end. So he's just scored that try and everyone's gone, well, it's got to be Robbie Paul. Yeah. There you go. So I think had it been done after the game, it might have been different. I feel like in the 2005. <laughs> well, Kevin, it's, it's a. It's a Australian tradition as well, but it's got in the Northern Hemisphere. Why can't they wait till the end of the effing game to get the man in the match? How long does it take to tally like twenty votes and get a, you know relay the, the news down to the Prezzo? Insane. Yeah, yeah. But they, the thing is as well, I don't know if it has the the, the Clive Churchill Medal doesn't really have the same cachet, but like in the Lancer Trophy, it's like the biggest betting market. So like everybody mm. wants to bet on it. So you can guarantee that half of the press box. It's probably got a tenner on someone to win it. <laughs> like it's the sort of thing that if someone didn't watch rugby league all the time but would watch like big games, they would text you saying, "Who should I bet on for Lansford?" Like that's the bet that you do, and it's a sign of southern bookies is that they never offer a man of the match market, and you're like, "That's what everybody wants to bet on," and you just wouldn't because they don't do it all the time. You'd be like, "Well, these people don't know what they're on about." Like the amount of times I've been in the bookies at Houston Station trying to put on my bets and they go, oh, sorry, we don't do a man in the match market. And you're like, fuck off. <laughs> Wembley Stadium bookies didn't do it for a long time. And I think enough people complained that they started doing it. Well, I've got a funny story about the bookies there. When, when I lived there in 2000 to 2002, I started gambling as, as my addiction uh, wants on Super League. And the Southern bookies, you had to write the um, tickets out in pencil on a carbon copy thing. And they didn't know about rugby league the the old ducks at the Ladbrokes so I was getting the prices for the line like minus 12 and a half or whatever but just head to head and I was cleaning up there for a few weeks because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know rugby league yeah this is um there's a couple of other like so the thing is it's hard to say with the Bobby Gilder thing like having watched it again like he is brilliant but the reason that I think that I thought he'd been even better than he was was because he set up all those tries. But really, his great tactical innovation of that thing of kicking the ball really high in the air because his fullback is an incompetent and just doing it repeatedly. I don't know how big a tactical, tactical innovation that actually is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, in like, just, yeah it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not exactly rocket science. Like The guy keeps fucking up, so just keep doing it. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think it also goes back to, you know, the many discussions Andy and I have had about Kenny and Sterling. Just the fact that Kenny is, is so much better to watch that, you know, Sterling kind of like goes in, in the shadow a bit despite him you know, have achieved so much more and, and being probably the, the all-round better player. As good as Bob, Bobby Goulding was in that game, it's it's Robbie Paul that I've got my eyes on. You know, I want to see those, those big plays and, and that's kind of what I'm watching for. Yeah, and do you know, I thought of this before, right? So I think, Bob, uh, Bobby, I think Robbie Paul is probably the last great Kiwi who never played in Australia. Yeah. So you think of before that, I actually went and looked, the Leeds team who played in the final the year before had, I think, four or five Kiwis, of which only Kevin Iro had played like a substantial amount of ARL. So you have like, I say, Nathan Marlowe's there, Richie Blackmore's there. Uh, who are the other ones? One of the mans, George Mann or Dwayne Mann, I think. I think they're George Mann, maybe. And there's loads of them. They never played in... Um, you know, never had substantial careers. The same as I know it's been mentioned on this podcast before about Swear and Nickow, and it's like, is he actually, mm. as you would say, fair dinkum? Like, <laughs> <laughs> is, he, is he actually any good? And Robbie Paul, I guess Tommy Luluai still has it a little bit where like he'll still get picked for New Zealand from time to time. Um, or certainly was he played in the last World Cup and he was the only player they had he played in Super League or Ben Murdoch Massilla now. And you're like, wow, in Super League, he must be shit. And then he turns up naturally, no, this guy's pretty good. And like Robbie Paul was the last one. He was like, is he like, he never played in Australia. And yet everybody pretty much universally accepted that this guy was shit off. Like, yeah, we did. Um, but I used to love when it had the, the players we didn't see over here, like, like mm. Inga Tuwagimala and guys like that, that you'd, you'd see just in Super League, or just in England. I mean, um, and that was exciting for us, you know, getting the open rugby magazine and going, oh, who's this, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, that team, the year before the Wigan team, would have had Twigamala and, like, Frano Botico. Frano I loved Botico. him, yeah. I, do you know, I thought when I was a kid, I thought Frano Botico was a Maori name. He sounds right. like he's Croatian. He was the first guy to have the ball leaning forward on his goal kicks. This is <laughs> something I noticed in this game, right? This is a bit, like, proper old, old man stuff, you know? The thing in England about like when did dog shit stop being white? Like, <laughs> <laughs> when did they stop kicking off sand? Like, all the kicks in this are off sand. Like, well, I don't one, they, they weren't exactly kicks the first three from Bobby Goulding, they were just oh. straight. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's amazing that, like, and and even though he's just had this amazing game, that's the first thing that, that they mentioned to him in the interview is, well, you missed a few kicks, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know it's um you know he goes and gets his kid at the end? I love that part about it, yeah. Do you know that kid is? It's well, his son, right? That plays at North Queensland, right? Yeah, yeah. He played at uh played for Newtown. And I only realised that when watching this, I was like, Oh, that must be Bobby Gilden Jr., age three. He played at Newtown, played at um Witness, I think. 
Well, I thought that like, was beautiful because they, they took him up to get the trophy and he's so excited. And it, it must be like you with your father going to the Challenge Cup and that. But then they had the uh, comparison with um, John Hamer's son, uh, daughter, looking really, really stern and um, pouting. Yeah. yeah. He says, like, oh, she looks disappointed. It's, like, it's all right, love, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> the other the commentators are really weird because I think it's the, the Australian bloke who looks like they've just gone central casting Australian. Like, we just needed a guy with the strongest Australian accent we can find, which I think is Steve Sims. Well, so he, want... he sounded like a bloke from down the pub. Like, it was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he, he vacillated between, this is on the BBC, and there might be a lot of people who don't know rugby league watching, so I'm going to explain really obvious things in really minute detail to, like, wildly off-the-mark, like, <laughs> pieces of analysis. Like, yeah. Well, they've done well. They've tried to pass the ball backwards there. <laughs> that, that kind of level. <laughs> I also quite enjoyed that they the because Bradford Bowes has only just become Bradford Bowes. When it whenever they show the replay, it would say St Helens and Bradford B, as if it yeah. was like Cardi Cardi B's Yorkshire cousin Bradford. <laughs> I, I didn't know why they had Bradford B. It was because they couldn't fit it in, right? Yeah, they must have not been out of fear. The graphics department probably did that morning. Said, what are we going to do? Oh, we, do we just go the Bulls? Do we just go Bradford? Let's just go Bradford B, just to make sure it's not the other Bradford. Well, it's, it's going to generate into more nostalgia, but I was looking at the graphics thinking, how do we accept these? I still think that was shit hot, those graphics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw, you've already slagged Australian Rugby League on the Mega Drive on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> I, I played last year, and the idea that you could play as Alderman Workington on, like, on the Mega oh, Drive yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to love it, too. But on, we, had on, our own, we had our own version of that, incidentally, on the PC, where every player looked like Paul, Bro- Paul Broadbent. <laughs> I've tried to find an emulator for it, but you can't play it anymore. And it had Eddie and Steve up doing the commentary, and it was, oh, he's got a smile as wide as Christmas Day. <laughs> so I don't think even in the annals of Steve O's shit commentary, he's ever actually said. I'm, I'm obviously, you know, steeped in, in this period of, of history at the moment. And you mentioned the Bradford Bulls thing and, and all Bradford Bulls things thing and all, all the other teams making that same change. You can't really underestimate how big a change that is. You know, you got like, you know, Warrington of the Wire, and now suddenly like they're the Wolves, and and just these really seemingly artificial names being brought into it. Whereas in Australia, like we kind of like always had those other names. But it's strange though, because Rochdale on it, they've been Rochdale on it since forever. Like, yeah, it's not it's not completely new. Like you have. Obviously, you had like you know Wigan Warriors and Cast. I think Cast Tigers have been Cast Tigers since 1926. Like I don't think mm-hmm. some Cast Tigers fan will definitely send you a tweet about that. <laughs> tweet it to me. I'll tell you to fuck off. Like, um, but you know, like so you had. I mean, I always think of Halifax, Halifax uh, Blue Sox was the most cringeworthy one. Yeah, they're now terrible. Halifax. They've just become Halifax Panthers now. Mm-hmm. But they Bradford Bulls seems to work. And they, I mean, I. It took me years to realize they just basically nicked the Chicago Bulls yeah. logo. Yeah. But like Bradford, it, there is a, probably a symbolic moment you can pull out from going from being Bradford Northern to being Bradford Bulls. Like, what's our brand going to be? Are we going to be Northern or are we going to well, be something else? I've got to say, like, I love all that stuff, like the wire and stuff like that. But, um, you know, if you want to go out of the Northern England area, you've got to. Go a bit more American at some point. Like, like the fact that they're uh, the wire, and you've got to deduce who that is as a foreign yeah. fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, 
but it's, it's weird now because you think of, if you go to grounds like people still call like witness the chemics like you still hear that mm-hmm. or leads are the liners not the yeah not people say rhinos as well like it's, it's kind of when you go to roosters like you still hear you still have you know east like <laughs> yeah but, you know they, they still does exist and it's i kind of like the idea now that you've got sort of the official one but you have you still have the heritage yeah. one as well it's not yeah, it's like I don't think anyone's calling Lee the lobby gobblers anymore, but that's, you know. <laughs> Just a few random things. I wanted to talk about Graham Bradley. Love Graham Bradley. Just followed Brian Smith to, to Bradford from St. George. Um, and he actually kind of became somewhat of a, a Bradford legend. It, it seems like he's quite revered by, by Bradford fans. Yeah, he was a great player. He was way too tall to be a standoff. Like, he... Um, he, I remember him being like a properly good player, and he stayed with them for a couple of years, really, until Henry Paul came in. I actually think maybe it was because when they were really, really good around like the 2000 kind of era, they he'd gone by then, and they had the um, Henry Robbie and then Paul Deacon. So Paul Deacon basically became the Bobby Gilding style player, the very much hand on the tiller kind of guy, and they were a brilliant combination. Um, but yeah, I Bradley, I think they had some real ropey Australians at the time, though. And they actually, if you look at the, the players they had later, they had way more New Zealanders, you know, Joe Bangana and Tavita Vaikona, but Tavita Vaikona, Leslie Vainakolo, like people like that. They, they had this, that was their shtick, was that they had like the big four props. So you had, I think it was Field and Peacock, Anderson, Vangana. And then, no, that was what they did. Big Islander guys, like in terms of, you know, Wigan went out and signed you know, Trent Barrett and people like that, and that wasn't mm. really the um, the Bradford way up until I guess they got Matt Orford at some point was probably the only one you could think. I mean, we're going, you'd be going forward a lot there. Um, I'm trying to think. Was the the interesting thing as well? Speaking of the um, on the Saints team, right? I did. I forgot Tommy Martin goes off injured in this game because I thought Tommy Martin played brilliantly. So he actually was the, the season after. He basically was the best player on the field. I don't think he won the last trophy, but he was very, very good. They, mm-hmm. they, they basically had a rematch in the same final, which was also like a really good game. It's not as good as this one, but still a really good game. 30-22 or something like that. Saints won again. But um, Tommy Martin was brilliant that year, and Carl Hammond as well. And I, in my head, Tommy Martin had been brilliant in this game, but then I was <laughs> yeah, half an hour and he's limping off. I'm going, well, is it going to be some sort of Lazarus-like comeback from Tommy Martin? <laughs> But I thought it was it was worth sharing, right? I so I was listening to your podcast this week talking about, you know, the music in Central Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ideas, right. So I, I rang my dad up and was like, Do you remember that? And he never remembered it. But mate, my theory is that he might not have known it was the clown music. Yeah. When he heard it and he was just in that's the Wigan music and now it's the clown music. But Tommy Martin scored the last try at Central Park. I went when when they shut the ground down, in which you, you can watch the um, there's no highlights of the game on YouTube certainly that I could find. Um, if you find them, anyone on the internet, please do send them to me. But um, he scored last try. Then there's a brilliant VT that Sky did beforehand, in which they try and they interview all the old boys. It's like the steward who's been there for 50 years, and uh, it's like something out of a Peter K sketch. Like, but <laughs> they, they talk they talk to Sean Edwards, who looks like he's just got out of prison. Like describe his outfit. And they go, what's your first memory of Central Park? And he says, trying to sneak in without paying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the ultimate crim face. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is his face. He's like, 
John Edwards in the prison yard. Though. He's in like a singlet, and he oh, he looks. <laughs> you think how oh, was that man gone out with Heather Small? Like um, in the height oh, of no, the fame. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but he um, um he, he should be he should be in black grape or um the Mondays or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just needs like a black a black leather baseball cap on backwards. <laughs> but he, in that game, right, I, I, a little bit off topic, but I'm sure he'll allow it because it's a really fucking rugby league story. So it was Wigan Central last game at Central Central Park. Wigan won, but Tommy Martin scored the last try. But about two minutes from the end, we were in like the main stand with all the old like clappy wooden seats and they basically said you know have you ever seen the film 24 hour party people love it yeah. you know where tony wilson says you know to the best of your abilities loot yeah. and they basically <laughs> said that on the tannoy like if you want to take anything home it's for the tesco next week this so just take what you want and people pulled out like crowbars and, like, <laughs> up the stage. and we brought a seat home to my mate so my mate somewhere in rochdale guy i played footy with as a kid has got a central park chair that way, yeah. we just fucking oh, nicked. Yeah. And, well, I guess Nick, they let you have it, but people like smashed the stadium apart live, like live on Sky. Well, I was going to say, um, like when you said uh, they're talking to the old steward being there for 50 years, it reminded me of 24 hour party people when he talks to the guy who's 100 years old and he goes, What do you remember about that time? And he goes, Very little. <laughs> Very, <laughs> little. <laughs> Very little. <laughs> That's basically what this book does. <laughs> Was, well, I used to do the scoreboard back when they had an old scoreboard. Of course, I had an onion tied to my belt. That was the important <laughs> <laughs> the style at the time. I, I'm sure they did all right out of the sale and all, and, and maybe you're in a better place since. But there's just something so English rugby league about Wigan selling their stadium to Tesco's. <laughs> well, Rockstar Hornets did. Rockstar Hornets is a Morrison's. And um, I actually met. So funny. I was at Para a couple of weeks ago, and my dad texted me saying, "Are you at Para?" I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Oh, Aaron's there. So Aaron's this guy, Aaron Sawyer, who played like reserve grades, didn't he? Never made um, the Winfield Cup, but he played. He scored the last try at Rockstar on his ground. Mm. And so he used to live in my house. He was like our lodger when I was a kid. So I hadn't seen him since I was about four. I literally wouldn't, you know. He remembered me more than I remembered him. Anyway, he was in the hospitality, and so my dad was like, I was in, you know, with the punters. And my dad's like, I'll go see this guy. So we go meet him up outside. I think he'd been on the drink for a bit, but he, uh, he was a lovely man. But he, he, he has this, like, plaque now, which is in the Morrison supermarket. It's like, this is where the last try at the athletics ground Oh, wow. Oh, by Aaron Sawyer. And it's like between, like, the meat and the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've not been to the Central Park. I've not been to the Central Park uh, Tesco's, but I, I hope they also have that because Tommy Martin scored here and the cereals on the next aisle. Like, well, Michael, can we ask um, Mike about uh, the pizza deal? I mean, uh, we only have dribs and drabs come through here uh, about the, the pizza sponsorship for Super League. Oh yeah, yeah. Can we break it down for the listeners? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a um, look. It's a difficult game to sell, right? And one of the things that I, if you you could read back my column for like two years ago, like one of the things that I've always written about is like you get the audience, that you, your advertisers match your audience, right? And you can, you can't like, I mean, we have this problem with the pokies here, like always, you know, Super League famously turned down money from a bookies one year and ended up with Eddie Stobart Truckers. It's like yeah. sponsoring the league for now. So it's not, 
you know, we've, it's something we've always, always struggled with. Like, and I, I, I kind of understand why, like, that, that was better than now when that was basically what was on the table. So they, I know, like, a, a couple of times where in the past, you look at who's sponsored. You have the Betford Super League now. You've had the Ladbrokes Challenge Cup. Like, all of these, like, Tetley's Bitter. Well, at the time that this was, you had the Silk Cup Challenge Cup bags. And then the Stones Bitter Championship Stones, which was a bitter. I remember <laughs> like, trying John Smith's Bitter and going, this is the sponsor? Jesus. <laughs> hey, Stones Bitter is great, though. Stones Bitter was great, right? Because if you wanted to go to a house party and be confident that nobody would steal your cans, <laughs> Stones Bitter was the one to bring. I used to joke, my mom's got a picture of her. I'm a twin, right? And so she's heavily pregnant with twins and the only shirt she could find that fit was this massive promotional Stones Bitter one that my dad had. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Stones Bitter Championship in 1989. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was like, well, I was incubated in that. So I, I've maintained the taste of Stones Bitter ever since. It's, uh, but that's what, you know, you look at, when you look at rugby league on the telly, like, and the guy in interviews got mushy peas behind him. Like that's, it says something about the product, right? So you either have to accept that that's the product you have and take the money and be happy with it, or you have to say, right, we're going to have more blue chip sponsors. So then you've got to convince them to to join up. But how did it go from Gillette and stuff like that? I mean, surely there's washing powder being used in the north of England. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's, look, this is one of the failings that we've historically had is like a lot of people – it's the same as as rugby league everywhere, really. Like you end up with lots of people who end up quite being quite myopic, and people who historically have lacked expertise because most people who have expertise in England end up working in London. Yeah. So you either go down and pay like London prices and stuff, or you end up with what you have. Now I think it's getting better. Like they've engaged people who are better than previously, but you know it's just. I remember Paul Schoolthorpe did a lot of ads for Gillette, right? And it was like, oh, my Lord, they've got a rugby league player. Like, and he was the sort of photogenic and good kind of person who could pull it off. But, like, you, would, you wonder, like, is Sam Burgess or whatever, who, would he have been that? It's hard to say, really. And I, I sort of wonder whether that is kind of ultimately the goal for rugby league. Is the, Do you want your person to be that? I don't know that we do. Like, you know, I'd like to think that we we can create a better product than that that sells itself in a different way that's kind of authentic to what we are, and that's the selling point. You know, I don't care what it is, as long as there's some cash money rolling in to grow the game. But I mean, yeah, it just seems like it's um, barter deals is not the go. No, well, yeah, they don't get any money for it. So obviously, that's a very bad example of it. But I kind of understand the bind that they were in. Like I, I know I'm a Scottish football fan, right? So I'm I'm acutely aware that Scottish football has exactly the same problems and it has exactly the same demographics. Like I've written extensively in the past about that the best way that rugby league should compare itself in England is not to the NRL or to rugby union, but to Scottish football. And that Scottish football shouldn't compare itself to the Premier League; it should compare itself to rugby league. Mm-hmm. And like there's pros and cons there because they're basically dealing in essentially a niche, authentic, analog product that exists in an environment that's predominantly made up of white, poor men. Like, so what do you end up with? Bookies and well, bookies and bears. You raise a very interesting point there, mate, because the the Southern fairies like to think that we're all violent thugs, right? You know, so why would you want your product associated with that? 
But the problem is violent thugs are so effective as rugby league players. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can't get away from it. But this, this is the thing as well. Like one of the best arguments in favour of the international game I just wish somebody at the NRL would listen to is that the best advertising money is in the National Rugby League and it comes from a key demographic that Rugby League does not touch at all. I, I don't think in Australia or in England. Like the higher, you know, the best, the best and most expensive advertising you can sell is to the most wealthy people. And we just do not touch that. Like we are KFC or Mushy P. Like mm. every... Every single try that goes to the goes to the video ref bunker thing here is a massive KFC advert. Like there was that was another rumor last season that they were going to the bunker more often so that Kevin KFC could get more screen time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so not like, even a rumor. Bill Harrigan talked about that the first season of English Super League when he was refing there that they, they would ask him to go to the video ref more for the for the sponsor. So you see, I mean, the advertising that's kind of a problem. Like I. I once counted what's in Celtic against the Burnian that the, all the rotating ads on the video ad board were all bookies and they were sponsored by two bookies and behind the goal was Gamblers Anonymous. Mm-hmm. So like, you, this is this is the audience that they're in. Like, how do you break out of that? Because ultimately, as as was the case of the Winfield Cup, like, until it gets banned, they're going to be the people who pay the most money. So like, are you deliberately going to turn down those people's money in favour of Mushy Peas? Or, like, are you going to try and find something, like, a different way of doing things? And ultimately, I think the best way, that the best brands have de- dealt with this has been a third way, being like, we're just not going to play by your rules anymore. We're going to do it in an entirely different, I hate the word disrupt, but disruptive way, where you try and do something else with it. Whether that's, well, like, uncouple it's... themselves from Sky by selling content themselves on their own terms, or I don't know. I mean, I've got a hundred different ideas that we've done it to waste your time with, it's great to mind me think about this as well. Like, if you take blood money, it's a slippery slope from a uh, 45 degree angle to a straight drop in about one week. So, yeah, I mean, it's over now for both comps. Gamble yeah. Well, we've gone 25 years in, into the future from where we started. So let, let's yeah. let's finish it off by I, I, I want you, Mike, to help us set up our coming chapter. Uh, and if you could just maybe give us your idea of of the the tale that this Challenge Cup final had, and whether you think it made a significant impact to Super League in the early years. So I think in, in the grand scheme of things, this is just a good symbol of what the difference between Super League and previous was. So if you looked at this game compared to even the Challenge Cup final the year before, where it was Wigan whacking Leeds, like it was like Wigan with the Globetrotters and everybody else was general. And now basically the generals have got better because of full-time professionalism. So whilst they might mention Carl Fairbanks being a dairy farmer, like most of the players are now professionals. So you see standards raised across the world. And you, what you're going to see in terms of what Bradford have done as a sort of a business entity will be picked up by other clubs. That's what Leeds Rhinos did very well. St. Helens eventually, Wigan eventually now look at them and obviously Bradford have had massive financial trouble in the last 10 years. But Saints, Wigan, Leeds, basically new stadiums, Leeds on the same place, mostly renovated stadiums. So you see this movement now and say like some some clubs are going to um, take the ball and run with it like in a way that had it not changed I don't think they would have done 
the big thing as well, which to come back to football a minute, is that you have the Taylor Report, which basically enforces after the Hillsborough disaster, certain places have to make the stadiums better. So you end up with this standard raise from the general public, like people are now used to seeing rather than standing. And what you look at Saints and at um, Warrington's new ground, and Salford's as well, they've enacted safe standing. So they, they have this, they've gone the whole way and back again, essentially. But you you then can see in Bradford what's happening commercially in rugby league. You can see in St. Helens what's happening in terms of the team that's going to end up dominating. Like they're probably, between them and Bradford, the dominant team of the first, certainly the first decade of Super League. Saints are still going now, being really good. So, you know, Saints, I wouldn't say they transformed themselves because they were a good club before that. Of course they were. But like, the modern incarnation of Saints is kind of born that day. That's like, this is going to be the comeback king, which is their sort of trademark. Eddie Hemmings, PM, you can never write off the Saints. This is their big first comeback that kind of sets that narrative on the field. Um, and also just like, you look at the, the game being played in the summer like that. The, the cup final was always in the summer or, you know, the end of August, start of May. So that's lots of cup finals. If you only watched cup finals, you'd think it was a, br- a brilliant sunny day most of the time. But obviously, that was now the start of the season, and we're going to get another four months of this. So you end up with that kind of, you know, this is a good example of that thing happening. And it's it's as simple as going watching the semi-final, which is played on a pitch that looks like it's like frozen solid in Huddersfield. Mm-hmm. So you look at it and you go, well, that's that's a game that's played in, you know, March, and this is a game that's played at the end of April. And previously, we would have then stopped playing. And now this is only a starting point. So I think you can see the strength of the summer rugby kind of argument in this game. I don't think it needed to be made, particularly like I don't think it really needs to be made anymore. Like anybody who doesn't believe in summer rugby is just, I don't understand. Like, but they, um, so I mean, obviously in Europe. Um, so it's emblematic, I think, more than it is. Like, I don't think the game itself changed anything, but this is, as I put in our notes, this is summer rugby writ large. Like this is what it, it means now. This is the sort of football you can play because you can't play that football in January, even in the sort of unstructured English way. That would just be a lot more turgid, a lot more drop ball. Now it's like, oh shit, we could play this all the time if we wanted to. Mm. Um, this this was fantastic and and a really great game. I'd I'd urge anyone who hasn't seen it, as I said at the start, please watch it. Uh, I I will still put eighty five slightly ahead of it. Where, where are you on that, Andy? Yeah, probably, but I, I still love this one too. Yeah. 85 was just like 85 was like way back to the future that was like really really old school this one had a foot in both camps and you know I I would like to go along with you but as an OFC fan I'll have to be reminded that OFC lost in 1985 (laughs) and so uh, I actually used to say 2005 and all one in uh, one by one point is actually the greatest fan ever (laughs) but when you get the Super League one moves on to 2005 you can call me back up again and we'll talk about how I uh, sat next to the line of color that's fine (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, but Mike, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic chat, uh, and we're like we're really pumped for to see what what you've got next. So uh, you've had some great articles over the last last couple of months. So I'm keen to see what you've got in store for the rest of the NRL season. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I have no plans. But I just I kind of just go and turn <laughs> up and then see what comes to me. So could I be shit from that one? You know, uh, everyone can follow you on Twitter. It's um, at Mike Mehal Wood M E E H A L L Wood. Yeah, tag me in things, send me things, tell me about how you want to bring out North Sydney Bears. A lot of people do that. 
Um, well, the the, uh, the Forbes links here as well, so you can go to your whole catalogue there. And uh, Michael and I can't recommend that enough. It's nice to hear people say that you have good ideas because um, mostly I I, I I lived abroad. I've lived abroad for nearly ten years, most of which was in places that don't play rugby league. So <laughs> mostly just been sat there watching it on a small screen, you know, at stupid times of the day. So it's been nice to know that people are, um, you know, seem to think I have something sensible to say. A yeah. lot of people would disagree. <laughs> uh, well, we're not two of those. So uh, this, as I said, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, and we will speak to you soon. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.